Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 12, 1887-88 vs England, Double Trouble. Ten years following the inaugural Test match, Australian cricket had passed its first high point and was currently in decline. The combination of constant arguments around money and selection between players and administrators, the reveal of the financial demands of Australian teams during overseas tours, the talent drain as players retired and the declining results of the national team all contributed to a general decline in the public's interest in test matches. This, combined with a drop in wages of 6%, as well as unemployment of 10%, meant that regular people had less money to spend attending cricket. These factors story led to disappointing returns for the 1886-87 English touring side, with suggestions being that the increasingly regular nature of tours had decreased their luster. Many in Australian cricket felt that there should be now be a break from international tours to allow these contests to once again become major events, with a need to rebuild Australian cricket paramount. What's that you say? Two English teams were on their way for the 1887-88 season? Well, that can't be good. The absurd situation had come about due to the lack of cooperation between the disparate clubs and associations running colonial cricket. The Melbourne club, still hoping to become the premier club in the land, had arranged for an amateur English side to tour. The side had been organised in part by W.G. Grace, although the great man himself would not leave his doctor's practice to make the trip. This had originally been planned for the previous season, however had been postponed once the tour organised by Lily White, Shaw and Shrewsbury had been announced. As no side had toured in back-to-back seasons, the Melbourne club felt confident for their tour to proceed. However, after arrangements being made, the Melbournians were blindsided by an announcement from their rivals running New South Wales cricket. The New South Wales Cricket Association had their own plans. With the centenary of the settlement of Sydney to be taking place in 1888, they planned on celebrating the occasion with a cricket tour. The New South Wales Association had established good relations with Shaw, Shrewsbury and Lillywide and asked them to organise a squad to participate in that season. However, they hadn't communicated their plans with the other colonial authorities, meaning that it wasn't until arrangements were well underway that both associations discovered the other's plans. Australian cricket had narrowly avoided this situation back in 1876-77, the season of the first Test match. Along with a team brought out by Lily White, Fred Grace had also been planning to run a tour. However, it withdrew and it became clear that Lily White had already secured accesses to many of the better players in England. Just over 10 years later, a similar scenario was repeating. However, on this occasion, neither side would back down. The Melbourne Cricket Club, arguing that their tour had been planning for longer, suggested that New South Wales cancel their tour. However, New South Wales persisted, saying that it had been their understanding that the Melbourne tour had been cancelled, not postponed, and that they were well within their rights to make their own arrangements. This pig-headedness from both sides would lead to a glut of cricket that season. 19 first-class matches would be played overall, by far the highest amount in Australian summer to that stage. However, as the profits would show, quantity was no substitute for quality. The side organised by the Melbourne Cricket Club was led by the amateur from Middlesex, George Vernon. Vernon had been part of Ivor Bly's quest to reclaim the Ashes in 1882-83 and had played in the first test of that series, scoring 14 runs in the match before being replaced by Fred Morley for the remaining tests. Vernon, with assistance from W.G. Grace, chose the squad. Martin Hawke, an amateur from Yorkshire and the heir to Lord Hawke, was chosen as the captain. Hawke was captain of Yorkshire, a position he would enjoy for an extraordinary 28 years from 1882 to 1910, winning eight county championships during that time. Vernon selected the side that included a mixture of amateurs and professionals, with Tim O'Brien, Walter Reed, Billy Bates, Polly Peel and William Adderwell having previous test experience. The side also included a rising star in Andrew Stoddart, who would go on to have a very good test career. Overall, 13 players were chosen, seven of which were of amateur status. Meanwhile, the squad selected by Shrewsbury was somewhat weaker than the side he brought the previous summer. However, he managed to retain the services of two of his best bowlers from that tour in Lohman and Briggs. He'd also convinced George Ulliott to return to Australia for the first time since 1885, whilst the team also boasted other test cricketers in Maurice Reid, no relation to Walter, and Dick Piling. There was much more of an amateur representation in Shrewsbury's side than usual, with four of the 13 made up of that class. 
Due to the social expectations of the time, Shrewsbury elected not to captain, choosing to focus on playing and managing the side. The leadership fell to Aubrey Smith, a Sussex right-arm fast bowler who would later go on to become a famous Hollywood actor. Vernon's team arrived first, landing in South Australia in late October and defeating South Australia in a first-class fixture by 71 runs, despite George Giffen's eight wickets for the match. They then travelled to Melbourne and defeated the Victorians by an innings. This match was notable for the debut of Hugh Trumbull, brother of John, who opened the bowling with Spotheth with his off-breaks. There was little sign of his future success, only taking one wicket. After games in country Victoria, Vernon's side headed to New South Wales where they would suffer their first defeat in late November, where nine wickets apiece from Turner and Ferris, coupled with a century from Percy McDonnell, saw New South Wales come away with a nine-wicket victory. Meanwhile, Shrewsbury's side had also arrived in Sydney, not playing their first game until early November. Like their fellow tourists, they also suffered a comprehensive loss at the hands of New South Wales, with Turner and Ferris bowling them out for 49 in just over an hour, leading to a 10-wicket victory for the home side. With the cluttered fixtures due to the two touring sides, Shrewsbury had made the decision to head to Queensland to tap new markets. They played two games against Queensland representative sides, although neither were first class due to the locals fielding 18 players, which included the future first test player from Queensland, Arthur Conningham. They returned to Sydney where they won the second match against New South Wales, a stronger batting performance seeing them come away victors by 10 wickets. An even more impressive result came against Victoria a week later, with a thumping innings and 456 run victory, with Shrewsbury scoring a mammoth 232. In early December, Vernon's side was hit with two major setbacks. On the 5th of December, Hawke was informed of the death of his father. With this news, he returned to England to take up the Baronet of Towton, becoming the seventh such man to hold that post. Walter Reid took over the captaincy of the side. Not even a week later, during practice in Melbourne, Billy Bates was struck in the eye by a ball at training. The damage to his sight was so great that he was unable to play on the rest of the tour and never played first-class cricket again. The popular Bates was a great loss to cricket and he took his enforced retirement hard, attempting to take his own life on the ship back to England. He would live on until 1900, dying of pneumonia, and was all remembered by Australian fans, having played all 15 of his test matches in the country, famously including the match in 1882-83, where he took 14 wickets and scored a half-century in an innings victory. Both sides would face combined Australian 11s, with Vernon side playing the first such match starting on New Year's Eve. None of these matches would go on to be classed as test matches, due to the English forces not being at full strength due to the separate touring groups. The Australian eleven was captained by Garrett and featured Blackham, Worrell, Ferris, Lyons, Horn and the Trumbull brothers, as well as future test player Harry Trott, but were soundly beaten by an innings and 78 runs. They then visited Tasmania, where they drew against Tasmania eleven featuring Ken Byrne, who scored 99 and would later go on to be the first Tasmanian test cricketer. Meanwhile, Shrewsbury's side, following another loss to New South Wales where Turner took an incredible 16 wickets, faced the combined Australian eleven at the SCG at the beginning of February. Only Garrett and Worrell of those who were played against Vernon's side participated in this match, with McDonald captaining and Bannerman, Jones, Moses and Turner all selected. Shrewsbury's eleven won a hard-fought match by five wickets, with Lyman the standout player, taking 12 wickets, including 7 for 43 in the combined second innings of 83. Bannerman carrying his bat for 45 not out. Vernon's side had made their way to New South Wales following their Tasmanian expedition, so both sides were in Sydney. It was agreed that the two sides should join forces and play in Australian eleven, in part to celebrate the centennial of the establishment of the colony, but also to try and draw a big crowd, hopefully to bring out more funds for what was becoming a financially disastrous tour for both sides. The English side saw seven members of Shrewsbury's side, Shrewsbury himself, Bulliet, Maurice Reid, Lohman, Piling and Tess Debutant Newham, joined with four of Vernon's, including Walter Reid, Peel, Adderwell and Debutant Stoddard with Walter Reid taking the captaincy. The Australians were captained by McDonnell and featured Blackham, Bannerman, Moses, Jones, Worrell, Burton, McShane, Garrett, Turner and Ferris. 
The big absence was George Giffen, who had been dominant for South Australia, averaging over 100 with two centuries in first-class matches that season, but rejected the amount of money offered to him to play as too low. McDonald won the toss and, like the first test the previous season, chose to send the English in on a wet pitch. Shrewsbury opened with Stoddart, facing the now-iconic duo of Turner and Ferris. The pitch was difficult, with the uneven bounce making it difficult to play back. The two batsmen decided to hit hard off the front foot, with Stoddart launching Ferris back over his head to the boundary, while Shrewsbury mirrored the shot later. The two had taken the score on to 27 before Stoddart attempted another drive in the air off Turner, but only succeeded in finding McShane, who ran in from the boundary to complete a good catch. Stoddart trudged back to the pavilion with 16 on debut, the first victim this match of the terror. Charles Thomas Bias Turner was born on the 16th of November 1862. He grew up in the town of Bathurst in country New South Wales where, as a student, he failed to make his school's cricket side. However, he took a job servicing coaches, rising at 4am to harness horses. This early start allowed him to spend the rest of the day working on his bowling, practising by aiming at a single stump. His big hands and strong back enabled him to bowl off-spin with the front-on action, whilst the physical labour prepared him for the long spells he would become famous for. When Shoreside toured Australia in 1881-82, they played against the 22 of Bathurst, a side which included Turner. He showed the first sides of his prodigious ability by taking 17 wickets in the match, including all 10 in the second innings. This drew the attention of the New South Wales selectors, leading to his first-class debut in 1882-83 against Ivo Blyside. Two wicketless first-class games followed over the next three years before Turner finally broke out and established himself as a premier Australian bowler. Across four first-class matches against Victoria and the touring English, Turner would claim 41 wickets, including four five-wicket innings and two 10-wicket matches. This explosion of wickets was assisted by two factors, wet pitches due to a La Nina weather effect and his partnership with left armer JJ Ferris, who debuted that season. In partnership, Turner the Terror and Ferris the Fiend vaulted into the Australian side and become the mainstays of the bowling attack, delivering the majority of overs, generally to devastating effect. This match in particular would become another example of Turner's prowess. Ulli had arrived at number three, but could only make five before he also fell hitting the ball in the air, before being caught at mid-on by Burton off Turner. This brought Walter Reid to join Shrewsbury. The English captain survived, becoming Turner's third victim, as Blackham uncharacteristically missed a something opportunity. The two batsmen dug in and batted together for almost an hour. Ferris in particular troubled Reid, his left arm spinners breaking across the batsmen quite sharply. After reaching double figures, Reid reached forward to a ball from Turner, only to be bowled to the gate. Next in, Maurice Reid ran down the pitch second ball, but Turner pulled back his length, causing the batsman to hit a tame catch back to the bowler, out for a duck. Peel arrived and looked more comfortable, but in playing back to Ferris, he dislodged the bay with his foot, causing him to be out hit wicket, the second such dismissal in test matches. The English were now in dire straits at 5 for 57. However, Blackham again let them off the hook, failing to stump new batsman Newham twice, once off each of Turner and Ferris. This allowed Newham and Shrewsby to build a partnership of 31, which had been the largest of the match. Shrewsby did the bulk of the scoring, taking his own score to 44 before Ferris got a ball to catch the shoulder of the Englishman's bat, having caught by Turner at point. Lohman came in next and helped take the score past 100, before Newham and Lohman were both out within a run of each other, with Ferris picking up his third and fourth wickets. 8 for 103 then became 9 for 103, as Turner completed his 5-4, clipping the bales to dismiss Briggs for a duck. The final pair managed to put on 10 runs before a smart bit of fielding by Bannerman at mid-off caught piling short of his ground. The English had made 113 off 100 overs. Other than the three overs where Garrett had replaced Ferris without success, Turner and Ferris had bowled all the overs, taking five and four wickets respectively. The Australian innings commenced in gloomy weather, with Bannerman and Jones opening the batting against Lohman and Peel. Before scoring, Bannerman gave a difficult chance to Newham off Peel at mid-on, which wasn't taken. He was unable to make the most of this life, as soon after, he ballooned an off-cutter from Lohman to Ulliet at square leg. Jones followed soon after, with the left arm off-spin of Peel catching the shoulder of his bat, with Shrewsbury accepting the catch at point. 
the Australian opens have both out with only two runs on the board, setting the tone for the rest of the innings. Moses, Burton, Worrell, McShane, McDonnell and Blackham would all fall for single-figure scores. All but McDonald failed to attempts at big hits. The Australians clearly feeling the same as the English that attack was the best approach. None of the Australians showed the composure of Shrewsbury to tough it out on a difficult pitch. This left the Australians at a catastrophic 8 for 26, with Lyman and Peel both claiming four wickets apiece. Garrett and Turner managed to see out the day without further loss, finishing on 35 runs, still trailing by 78. The next day, a Saturday, was a complete washout. So was the Monday following the Sunday rest day. The Australian innings, recommencing at eight down, would only see seven more runs added, as Lohman and Peel both claimed fifers, finishing the Australian innings at 42. This was the lowest score in Test history, beating the English score of 45 from the previous tour. Only Garrett had made double figures, being out for 10. The English had a 71-run lead heading into the second innings. Once again, Stoddart and Shrewsbury were sent in to face Turner and Ferris. Ferris was the more immediate threat, nearly claiming Stoddart from a skied ball for into the leg side before cleaning bowling both Shrewsbury and the next man, Ulliott, before the score had reached 15. Stoddart then became Turner's first victim, edging a ball behind to Blackham for 17. The two reeds, Captain Walter and Maurice, then joined in partnership. They took the score past 50 and were particularly harsh on Ferris, hitting him for multiple boundaries, leaving the left arm to be replaced by the medium pace of McShane. Turner finally caught the English captain in two minds about coming forward or back to having bowled for nine with the score at 54. Peel came to the crease to join Reed, who continued to do the bulk of the scoring, finding the boundary of regularity, including a shot into the stands for five. The two put on another 28 runs before Turner struck with a flurry of wickets. Peel was first out, attempting to dance down the pitch, but missing, with Blackham whipping the bails off. Next in Lomans Day only lasted one delivery, as a rising ball caught the glove for a smart legside catch. Reed attempted another big shot, but could only sky a ball behind the keeper, where Bannerman ran around to take the catch. Reed's 39 had come in only 49 balls, which given the low-scoring nature of the game meant it was an excellent knock. This three-wicket burst had given Turner his second 5-4 for the match, leaving the English at 7 for 84, a lead of 155. The hopes of a quick finish innings for the Australians were dashed, however, as Newham and Briggs negated the bowling. The two took the score past 100, with both batsmen handling the conditions well. The score had moved on to 111 before McShane succeeded in getting Briggs to hit a ball to cover point in the air, where the capture was accepted by Worrell. Another 20-run run partnership followed before Turner hit Newham on the toe and successfully appealing for LBW, with Atero finishing the innings off with another Yorker that took Pilings off stump. The English had ended on 137, giving them a substantial lead in the conditions of 208. Turner had finished the innings with 743 off 38 overs, giving him 12 for 87 for the match. He had bowled unchanged throughout both English innings, an event that would become a regularity for Australian sides in England that winter. The Australian innings began at 5 minutes to 5, with the captain promoting himself to open with Bannerman. The skipper cut one of his first balls for four, but the deficit had not even got below 200 before both openers were dismissed, with one wicket each to Lohman and Peel. Number three Moses hit Lohman over long on for four, but was caught at cover point of the same bowler attempting another big hit. Burton was then out for one, leaving the Australians at four for 21. Turner came in to join Jones and the two managed to double the Australian score, with Turner hitting Lohman twice for boundaries. A change of bowler to Adderwell brought about the wicket, trapping Turner LBW for 12. Garrett arrived at the crease and was able to survive with Jones through to stumps, Australia well behind at five for 45. Upon resumption on the Wednesday, Garrett failed to peel without adding to the single he was on from the night before, with Jones falling to Adderwell, being caught by Shrewsbury a point. McShane survived a chance when he was dropped without scoring, but failed to take advantage as Peel clean bowled him for a duck, whilst Worrell attempted to slog Lohman and was bowled for one. Blackham, who came in at the fall of Garrett, prevented the end of the match by batting for close to an hour for 25, was left not out when Ferris became the final wicket, with Shrewsbury taking his third catch for the day. The Australians been bowled out for 82, leading to a defeat by 126 runs. This result meant the Australians had now lost the last seven tests played. 
This test was the final one played by two regulars of Australian test sides, Sammy Jones and Tom Garrett. Both have been consistent, although never outstanding performance at test level, but will play their parts in some of the big moments, with Garrett being selected for the first ever test and second top scoring behind Charles Bannerman's epic in the first innings, whilst Jones run out by grace in the 1882 test had been the spark that lit the Demons' fuse that led to that famous Australian victory. He would be selected for the 1888 and 1890 tours, but would not play in any of the test matches due to illness and injury. Both continued on playing for New South Wales and were respected servants of the game. Garrett would become the last survivor of that first test, dying in 1943 at the age of 85. His great-grandson is Midnight Oil lead singer Peter Garrett. The two tours still had a month left of games before departing. Vernon's side commenced a game against New South Wales immediately upon the conclusion of the test, winning comfortably, whilst they also beat an Australian eleven by bowling them out for 32 in the final innings. Shrewsbury had two games against Australian elevens, which they also won comfortably. However, by this stage, the public were bored with cricket, meaning that crowds and therefore the profits were well down. Vernon's team departed in mid-March, whilst Shrewsbury's team visited New Zealand before heading home themselves. The season was one for the bowlers. The touring sides both had great performances, with Lyman and Adderwell both taking over 50 wickets for the tour. However, all bowlers paled in comparison to the terror. In conditions perfect for the boy from Bathurst, he bowled over 1,000 overs, taking 106 wickets at 13.5, with 13 fifers and 5-10 wicket matches. This remains the most wickets taken by a bowl in an Australian first-class season. He was ably supported by Ferris, who took 47 wickets himself, but the lack of consistent batting from his teammates meant that he was always performing from a position of weakness. The season, despite the excellent cricket, was a disaster. The Melbourne Cricket Club lost over £3,000 from their sponsorship of the Vernon Tour and any chance of becoming the dominating cricket club in the land, whilst the Shrewsbury Tour fared no better. It wouldn't be until the advent of World Series cricket 90 years later that two major international sides would be competing for the attention of the paying public. There was a possibility of international cricket fading as a focus of public imagination, and it would be four years before another English touring side would head to Australia. This tour would bring about a revival of Australian cricket, with the good doctor to bring back fans and help lead to the establishment of regular first-class competition with the donation of a certain shield. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.